Bote Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM Co-op Radio CFRO in Vancouver, broadcasting live uh, on the unceded, unsurrendered territories of the Coast Salish peoples. Today is Friday, April 17th, 2015, and Earth Day is coming up next week, so we have a special show for you. I'm your host, Alyssa. And I'm joined by our co-host, Elise. Hi. And our operator, Amir. Hello. And Allison and Jackie and Cynthia are away today. Welcome, everyone. Uh, So, um, yeah, Allison is actually uh, sick today, so I'm kind of filling in. We're kind of co-producing today, and we have a really great show for you. Uh, First of all, though, a reminder, Animal Voices is Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. Uh, We broadcast live every Friday, noon to one, and we bring you interviews, commentary, news, and events that you need to keep up to date with what's happening both locally and abroad. And all our past shows are at uh, animalvoices.org as uh, podcasts. So if you're a regular listener to Co-op Radio or Animal Voices, you probably already know that we're in the middle of our annual spring member drive here on Vancouver Co-op Radio, which means that this is the time that you show your love and support for the show by pledging us a donation or membership. Actually, any donation equals a membership, which is one cool thing. It can really be any amount to become a member. And to become a member, you can do so online at coopradio.org, or we're actually going to be taking your phone calls today if you're listening live on Friday at noon uh, during and after the show today the number is 604-684-8494 so please give us a call and either Amir or myself will take your call until about half hour after we finish and thank you so much in advance uh, we'll be chatting a bit more later in the show about why we feel it's important to support animal voices and co-op radio so for our feature segment today We actually have an interview with a local activist and author named Patricia Tallman. Uh, She's going to speak to us about um, a crucial environmental topic, that is the environmental impacts of the meat industry. And she's written a book called The Restore Our Planet Diet, Food Choices, Our Environment, and Our Health. And in this book, she gives a good interview of the toll that following a meat-centered diet takes on our earth as compared to a plant-based one. Uh, We encourage you to read the book if you're looking for something that takes a new perspective on environmental issues and food choices. And that interview with Patricia is coming up in about 30 minutes, so stay tuned. Also, we're featuring another book about the connections between diet and the environment. Um, That book is called Eating Earth, Environmental Ethics and Dietary Choice. And that one's by Lisa Kemmerer. She's a philosopher activist dedicated to working against oppression, whether on behalf of the environment, non-human animals, or disempowered human beings. She's currently an associate professor of philosophy and religions at Montana State University Billings, and we will start with that. I had a chance to talk to her in November of 2014 and haven't played that interview until now, and here it is. Greetings, Lisa. Thank you so much again for joining us on Animal Voices. We know you've written uh, many past works on non-human animal advocacy, But this is the first time I see that you've written about environmental ethics. What led you to write this current book, Eating Earth? And who is your intended audience? Ideally, I would reach the environmentalists. But um, realistically, I'll probably reach more animal activists. But the good news is if we're informed, then we can take this information out there. And I'm teaching environmental ethics right now. And they're all environmentalists and none of them have have any inclination towards animal activism, but I can see them going vegan. A person in the class just yesterday said that he'd been vegan for a week and had lost weight and felt terrific, and he's doing it for the environment, and he's enjoying the health effects, and I think that's maybe what the book can do is get in the hands of animal activists who can help inform environmentalists about the links and help bring change that way. And why do you think there's been such a divide between animal advocacy and environmentalism? Well, if you look historically, uh, people like Leopold, they look at species 
They had the idea that it's wildlife communities. The individual doesn't matter. I would point to that as the fundamental divide, is that animal activists care about every individual. Environmentalists care about species. So they're more than willing to sacrifice individuals on account of, say, ecosystems. They'll do things like culling, i.e. slaughtering elephants for an ecosystem. And of course, that goes all the way down to uh, you know, smaller animals, but with elephants, maybe people will have more sympathy with just how, um, how how violent how violent and horrible that is to take a gun and shoot elephants in order to keep an ecosystem safe. Now, obviously, these are complicated matters, and we do have. I don't want to say we have an elephant population problem, but this is the sort of thing that environmentalists and animal activists have to work out together. And instead of calling this an elephant problem, we need to see it for what it is, which is a human population problem. We've taken up too much land, and now we're killing the elephants because they don't have anywhere to go. So if we look at it on that level, clearly there's something that environmentalists and animal activists can get together on, and that's trying to reduce populations, making sure people have birth control availability, um, education. So you could see here the really strong grounds uh, that we have to work with environmentalists if we really want to help the world and the animals in it. And for you, what are the most compelling arguments against animal agriculture in terms of environmental effects? The most compelling link isn't any one but it's the fact that if you look at all of the major problems of the environment, from climate change to freshwater depletion to dead zones to uh, um, soil erosion, uh, desertification, um, all of those are strongly linked with animal agriculture. So it's the accumulative effect that really gets me that there's nothing else out there that we are doing that is causing as much environmental degradation as is our dietary choice. And of course, what's what then is fascinating about that is when you realize, and it is a choice, we do have other options, and they're cheaper, and they're healthier, and they cause less suffering. Many years ago, I stopped consuming the bodies of dead land animals based on what I learned about rainforest devastation particularly, but I kept on consuming the bodies of dead fish. I'm really glad to learn that you have dedicated a whole chapter of your book, Eating Earth, to fish consumption. What are the main ethical concerns related to eating fish? What's interesting about fishing is, again, it's a choice and that we don't see it. And by the way, I'm really glad you mentioned deforestation because that's, um, that's another one that just cannot be forgotten with regard to animal agriculture. And of course, the deforestation is affecting the water cycle. So water cycles affect fish. Just understanding the complications of how our diet is linked to all the problems of the world. So with fishing, we have the silent collapse of the oceans. The Pew Institute of, uh, that focuses on oceans is just saying that our seas are collapsing. The thing is, we can't see it. So we look at something like deforestation. We look at uh, clear-cut, and all of us go, wow, that's really ugly, and just imagine the ecosystems that were there, and now they're completely gone. But when this happens underwater, none of us sees it. We can be unaware of it. And we are largely unaware of what's going on, the fact that fisheries are keep collapsing. And we don't, instead of changing our diet and moving away from animal products, we move to a different kind of fish. And I'm certainly old enough to remember when new fish came in, like Pollock, that weren't offered before. And that's because other fish disappeared. So we're doing more deep sea fishing. So we're moving further into the oceans and deeper. And uh, we can't see what we're doing, but it's an ongoing destruction of the seas. And with fishing, one of the big problems is that the methods are indiscriminate. So if you're using hooks or if you're using nets, either way, what you're doing is indiscriminate. That means that you'll catch um, endangered species, and uh, sea turtles are one of the primary ones that get caught in nets and drown. Or uh, the endangered fish, like any other fish, is going to grab a hook. I had the, the horrible experience of working <clears throat> on a fishing boat for a grand total of one week when I was very young and very desperate and had... Uh, Nothing, and that job came along, and I um, had just started to learn about animal agriculture and was very sensitive to the issues and the ideas, but desperation won over, and I uh, got on a fishing boat, and they shot at everything that ate a fish. They shot seals. I watched seagulls 
I watched birds grab hooks and go underwater and drown. And of course, whether they're endangered species or not, they will, if they're looking for fish on the surface, they'll go after the reflectors and grab the hooks. So I had a chance. I quit after a week. I couldn't stand it. It was just insufferably cruel. I didn't have a lot of education on the issues then, but I knew I wanted nothing to do with it. So we've talked a bit about fishing and about animal agriculture. Now let's talk about hunting. Um, You dedicate the last part of your book to hunting. How is hunting harmful to the environment? I live in Montana and it's hunting season. Of course, I grew up in rural Washington state on the coast and hunting season there was always such an affront to my senses. You see the dead animals going by in trucks and all the people with their guns and you feel like you're going to die every time you go out into the forest. It has, again, many different problems socially, just with the fact that the hunters are such a powerful lobby that, you know, the majority of citizens simply aren't safe on state land during the hunting season. But environmentally, the main thing I would point to is the changing of the ecosystems rooted in, again, it goes clear back to Leopold. And when we first, uh, when Fish and Game first got started, it was because of hunters. Hunters were basically the the, the so-called big game species, the primary hunter species for for targeting were disappearing. So they came up with legislation and ways to try to protect the hunted animals. So the environmentalists claim is that the animals are still here because of hunters and they don't mention that the only reason we needed to protect them was because of hunters. So again, it's a circuitous argument. And remembering that uh, are that those the ungulates have been in danger because of hunters and the ecosystems are threatened because of hunters. And to this day, fish and wildlife because their money comes in from hunters, and again, that's a myth. The majority of their money does not come from hunters, but because that is the belief and the assumption and the way fish and game is designed, they cater to hunters. So this means that they will they kill animals that um, are predators, and they do this both on behalf of ranchers and on behalf of hunters. So both of them pull together on this topic. So instead of seeing a real ecosystem that is natural to an area, you'll see inflated Um, deer, elk, moose, caribou, it depends on what area you're in. And you'll see things like wolf kills because they don't want wolf and they don't want coyotes around and coyotes in particular. It's always open season on coyotes. And of course, it isn't that these predators are eating a lot of the, uh, the animals that hunters would like to kill. But it's just kind of an old tradition to make sure that predators aren't around so that humans themselves can do the killing. So through the policies of fish and game, rooted in the connection between fish and game and hunters, we have a tremendous manipulation of ecosystems to something like, oh, and I'm, I'm horrible at remembering numbers, but billions of dollars and millions of animals are killed every year by fish and game. Why aren't environmental organizations taking the effects of our dietary choices more seriously and speaking out about them? Money. They've, they're mainstream and they're a business and they know how to get money and it is not by being aligned with animal activists. Uh, so if they want people to donate and stay part of them, they have figured out that hunters have money and hunters will support them if they support hunters. So that's, it's kind of an alliance of um, back scratching that's going on. They have their hands in each other's pockets, so to speak, in the sense that hunters want the environmental organizations to lobby for them and the environmental organizations want the money of the hunters and their support. So you said earlier that you're teaching environmental ethics at the college level and that you've covered the material in your book, Eating Earth. Uh, What has the response been from your students? And what are the objections that you're hearing to your basic conclusion that we all need to start to shift to a fully plant-based diet? The most interesting objection, and one you would anticipate, would be that we could just cut back. The idea that we can just eat less animal products and all will be well in the world. But of course, that's not the case because there are so many people and nor can we do the grass-fed idea. That's completely impossible with the numbers of people that we got. We'd have to have several earths. So the normal uh, possible answers simply don't work based on our population. So the the comment I did get was, can't we just cut back? And in that case, I pull up the five reasons that I think we need to go to a plant-based diet. And those are at the very end of the book, so that if all else fails to convince a person that they really do need to change their diet to a vegan diet, 
at the very end of the book, it gives the five reasons, and I use the amore, the five letters of the word love from Italian. So I have it right. So the animal suffering, the medical reasons, um, the uh, oppression that is experienced, religions, and then, of course, the last one is environment. So if you don't change because of environment or if you think you can do a little less, well, you're still causing all those other harms. And so you still have to think about those. And that pushes from let's reduce to, okay, I guess you're right. There are better options if I do have the choice. And if I am inclined to do what is ethical, I need to go vegan. Now, you mentioned oppression um, in your acronym AMORE there. Um, how do oppression and privilege tie in to environmental ethics and dietary choice? Mm. Environmental racism is a, a very important term to know about. Whenever you have environmental degradation, the poorer, the, the less powerful are going to be the ones most affected by it, not the wealthy. So whenever we degrade the environment, you can pretty well figure that the poorer people are going to suffer more. And uh, I was doing some research in Africa a couple years ago, and they have been very clear that they no longer know when their rains are going to come or if their crops are therefore going to be able to grow. So this is climate change driven by our dietary choice. Choice, mind you. We have all sorts of choices. They don't, and we are making it impossible for them just to survive by our opulent way of living. So, and, and it's the same with the collapse of the fisheries. So we don't need to eat the fish, and we're taking so many that the fisheries are collapsing. And then the people who depend on those fish who don't have other options um, are going to be in serious trouble. And I'm very clear throughout the book that uh, my arguments aren't aimed at those who have dietary choices. Anyone who doesn't have a choice, bless them, you know, eat what you need to eat. Uh, granted, I don't like anyone causing pain and suffering to another, but if you have to do it to survive, that's a very different ethical issue than people who are choosing to do it simply as a matter of habit. So when our habits and our pleasures of the palate are causing others suffering because of our devastation of the environment, because we're causing climate change, because there are serious droughts and water shortages in other parts of the world, as well as now in our own countries. This is largely driven by animal agriculture. It isn't going to be the rich people who are most affected by the drought. And, it, and of course, this also drives wars. And again, it isn't the rich people that get have to go off to war. And I, I actually was just watching a, a tremendous... DVD on this that talked about the wars in the Middle East. Partly the Syrian rebellion was caused by droughts that people couldn't sustain their farmlands. They went into the cities and there was then friction. So you can see how the problems caused by our dietary choice, such as drought and such as deforestation and such as climate change, are linked not only to poorer people suffering, but to collapses of political systems and nations. And further on the topic of oppression, you have written and edited books about feminism, um, namely how speciesism and sexism connect, um, your book Sister Species and Speaking Up for Animals that we've talked to you on the show about before. Lisa, I'm curious to hear how you feel that sexism, animal exploitation, and environmental degradation are linked the fact that women have been exploited for their reproductive systems and that other animals are also exploited for their reproductive systems, there's a clear link there. Females are associated with our biology, with our wombs, with reproduction. So we lose value as we age. We lose value if we're gay so that we're not reproducing. Uh, we lose value if we're not fertile. And this is the same. I mean, I live in a ranching community, and if, if a cow doesn't take I, when they forcibly impregnate her, if she doesn't bear offspring, she's off to the slaughterhouse. And as they age, five or six years, they're done. They're not as productive. Off they go to the slaughterhouse. So there's that clear biological link between associating women with reproduction as well as other female animals and using them for uh, things like wet nurses um, in the past with human beings and probably still some places now and stealing the, the nursing milk of cattle. With regard to the environment, again, the poor are always the ones most affected, and women lacking power and, and lacking access to wealth 
are some of the ones most affected. So, for example, deforestation, when we cut down our forests in order to graze animals and order to grow crops to feed animals, and for instance, in this country, 70% of our grain crops are, are fed to animal agriculture. Well, you know, if you're human-centered and that's what you care about, obviously we could feed the world with those grains. So while we're making these kinds of choices, in other countries, women are responsible for coming up with fuel, and they have to wander farther and farther, not just to get their fuel, but also in drought-ridden areas, again, linked to animal agriculture, they have to wander farther to collect water. So women who spend so many hours now walking so far to find fuel and water to take care of the needs of their families, which they're responsible for, how can they get an education? How can they do things which will advance their own possibilities in life? And there's a clear link also between education and less childbirth. So the links between um, reducing our population and animal agriculture, if you can follow that line, we eat the animals that they're driving deforestation and drought, which prevents the females from getting the education and having other options because they're responsible for gathering fuel, wood, and water, which is linked to population. So you see these links that are tied directly to females that are often overlooked and not often enough talked about. And now on to your new work. I see you're currently in progress on a new book called Animals and the Environment, Advocacy, Activism, and the Quest for Common Ground. Uh, how is this new book different from Eating Earth? Eating Earth is directly and only about diet, and it focuses on the choices that we make with regard to um, the environment and diet, so animal agriculture, fishing, and then hunting. Animals in the Environment, it's an anthology, so it has voices from different people, although I'm not interested in dissenting voices. I'm not interested in people who, for instance, are denying climate change or those sorts of things. So it's a book that is similar in that it offers a strong voice linking environmentalist to animal activists. So that's the similarity. And it also has a whole section on dietary choice, which looks at kind of different elements of it, like economic equations. And it talks about fishing and animal agriculture. It talks about trapping. It adds that element. It has different sections that look at things like wildlife and wilderness. So things like the elephants that I talked about, those types of issues come up. And there's some wonderful feminist chapters. There's one by a person named Melanie Martin who writes about patriarchal culture in films, who explores how we invade the private lives of animals and how we present them as dangerous so that big, tough men can go out there and wrestle with alligators. And so it has uh, different uh, topics in that it, in, it invites wilderness in as well as diet. And it has theory as well. It looks at ecofeminism and moral theories. And so it's broader in scope, but similar in its focus of linking animal activists and, envi and environmentalists. In terms of linking and finding common ground, uh, do you have any tips on how animal advocates might practically uh, start to bridge a gap with environmentalists and start to work together with them? I'm so glad you asked that because the first thing I want to say, it isn't about us directly reaching out to the environmentalists. It's about thinking about our own choices. So try to stop buying processed foods. Okay, we're vegan. We're ahead of the game. But it doesn't mean we don't need to look at the same things an environmentalist advocate that others look at that we have too often overlooked. We need to get away from the packaged foods. We need to go organic. We need to move away from processed. We need to go for whole foods. So we need to think about our environmental impact as well. And in doing that, we are embracing the environmentalists. How can we ask others to change if we're not willing to change ourselves? So the first thing we need to do is get on board with those things that the environmentalists are encouraging people to do on behalf of the environment. And I think it goes beyond diet. We need to be walking. We need to be riding bicycles. We need to be using the, the shower heads that reduce our water supply. We need to make connections if we're going to invite them to help us with moving the world toward vegan. We need to show that we understand the issues and that we're on board with them. 
That was Lisa Kemmerer, author of Eating Earth, Environmental Ethics and Dietary Choice. And again, Lisa Kemmerer is a philosopher activist uh, based in Montana, a professor of philosophy and religious studies there. And now we're going to hear from someone who isn't present in the co-op radio studio, but who recorded this message for us. This is Allison, of course, um, talking about what co-op radio means to her. It is our annual spring member drive here at Vancouver Co-op Radio, which runs from April 10th to 24th. And what that means is that it's that time of the year where we ask you, our listeners, to please show your support of the Animal Voices Show and Co-op Radio by making a monetary contribution to help keep our show on the air. So you might be wondering, why do we need money? Yes, it's true that Animal Voices is all volunteer run, but Vancouver Co-op Radio is a non-commercial radio station and registered charity, in case you didn't know. So that means that we rely on paid memberships and donations from our supporters to keep our station running and thriving. A wide supportive membership base is critical to the radio station's existence and, more importantly, defines who we are and what keeps us independent and unique. And part of what keeps us independent and unique is the fact that we have no commercials here on Co-op Radio to stifle what we do. We are a public affairs show, and as part of that co-op radio, we try to provide airtime to many social groups who are frequently ignored by the conventional media. And we aim to cover issues and events from the perspective of the social movements involved in addressing them. And for our show, that's the animal rights movement. I'm proud to be a member of Co-op Radio, and that is because I fully support the mission of our radio station, and I love that we volunteers here have the freedom to use our shows as a platform for activism and education throughout not just our own local community, but to everyone in the whole world via the internet and podcasting. And the issues that we broadcast about are relevant to everyone. I've been here at the station and producing shows at Animal Voices since 2009, and I've had the opportunity to personally reach out to all kinds of activists, nonprofit organizations, academic scholars, or just individuals who have a message to share for the animals. And it gives me a sense of powerful satisfaction, you could say, to be able to share and deliver these messages to you, and to have the potential to reach out to thousands of people throughout the airwaves and beyond. So I did a count this week of the number of interviews that I've personally coordinated and done in the past five and a half years. And can you guess what that number might be? Well, it's 156. And that, of course, doesn't even include all of the other interviews we've done here at Animal Voices, even just since I started in 2009, as we have several other show producers here who lead interviews, too. And when I go back and look at my records to see the names of all the people who we've spoken to in the past to share their messages of understanding issues related to animal activism, liberation, veganism, and other animal issues, it makes me proud to know that I've been a part of making this all happen. Animal Voices is my passion, and I'm honored to be here every Friday to keep spreading the message of compassionate living to as many people as possible. We still have a lot of work to do here for the animals, and I'm happy to do my part in this movement here at Co-op Radio. Of course, you are listening to Vancouver Co-op Radio 100.5 CFRO. This is 100% non-corporate, member-driven radio broadcasting live from so-called Vancouver on the unsurrendered, unceded territories of Coast Salish peoples. My name's Alyssa. That was um, Allison just talking there. And I definitely agree with um, her reasons for being here. I've been here for um, almost uh, four years as well and echoing so many of her statements. Um, Elise, I'm curious to hear what, uh, what you appreciate about animal voices or co-op radio well i think there's a lot i mean for me um more than anything else co-op radio is about um giving the people a voice i mean forgive the cliche but um i think that shows like this one stations like this one are so important because they give a platform to um perspectives and ideas that might not otherwise have a platform on mainstream radio. So, you know, and this, obviously the theme of this show, the sort of overarching topic is um, animal advocacy and compassionate living. And I think there's 
nowhere else, no other radio station in BC where you would find the um, the depth and breadth of coverage of that topic, every subtopic that you find here on this show. So to me, that's that's very valuable. Um, so yeah, let's talk about how to make a donation for the, the membership drive. You can do this a couple of ways. You can call us right now at 604-684-8494, and Amir will take your pledge over the phone. Or you can simply go to www.coopradio.org and click on Donate to Co-op Radio on the upper right-hand corner of the site and make your member donation there on behalf of Animal Voices. And please remember that even if you are listening to this show as a podcast anytime after our member drive, that we still need your support. We have to raise $1,000 every year to keep the show running, so please keep that in mind. And also keep in mind that every little bit helps. You can be an ongoing monthly donor and pledge just $5 a month that's deducted from your bank account. Uh, it's such an easy way to keep make a contribution towards the work that we here at Animal Voices do for the animals, and we hope that you will help us. So we thank you in advance for your consideration to help keep our important programming on the airwaves in Vancouver and around the world. So remember to call 604-684-8494 or go to coopradio.org and donate for Animal Voices. Mm, thank you. Yeah, so exciting. I give $5 a month. For me, that's easy. I don't feel it. And that's how I choose to be a member of Co-op Radio. Oh, and also, there's a, isn't there like a party tonight? There is, yeah. Actually, Co-op Radio is celebrating 40 years on the air. Um, the celebration is tonight at the Wise Hall. Um, and we were asked to mention, actually, that Very Nicey Pecoras, which is a, a vegetarian um, pecora food truck, will be giving away free pecoras between 7 o'clock and 8.30. And there's, like, I think four different kinds of vegan tasty pecoras. So that is an incentive for everybody to go down to the Wise Hall tonight at 7 p.m. and check out the 40th anniversary celebration of Co-op Radio. Yay. All right. So now uh, we are going to talk to our next guest. For our feature interview today, we are very pleased to have Dr. Patricia Tallman on the show to speak about her recently published book called The Restore Our Planet Diet, Food Choices, Our Environment, and Our Health. Patricia has a master's degree in environmental sciences and a PhD in water resources engineering. And after she realized that individual actions exert an immense impact upon animal suffering and environmental degradation, she became vegan in 2003. Uh, through her speaking engagements, policy consulting, and writing, Dr. Tallman de demonstrates how a plant-based diet profoundly benefits human, animal, and environmental health. And she'll be speaking with us today about the environmental impacts of an animal-based diet versus a vegan diet, as described in her new book. Hello, Patricia, and welcome to Animal Voices. Oh, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> it's it's very much our pleasure. It's great to speak with, you know, local activists too. I love yes. I love that we can give people like you a platform here on Co-op Radio. Thank you. Yeah, so um thanks for coming on our show for Earth Day to talk about the subjects covered in your book about what we eat and how it affects our planet. Uh, your your book is unique to others that talk about the environmental impacts of the meat industry in that it analyzes the alternatives in following a plant-based diet and even has recipes in it. Um, can you first tell us a bit about the book and who you had in mind to write it for? Like, who, who's your audience for this new book? Sure. Uh, basically, I wrote the book for the majority of people uh, who have not considered a plant-based diet, but who are nonetheless either eco-conscious or health-conscious, and we have quite a few of those people on the West Coast. And what I wanted to do was to inform these people how their food choices impact the environment and their health. And this book will enable the reader to make better choices uh, in order to benefit the environment as well as reduce the risk of chronic diseases at the same time. Um, there are uh, two types of uh, uh, recipes that I present in the book. Uh, in the first half of the book, I give vegan versions of traditional meat and dairy-based comfort foods. So there are side-by-side uh, -side comparisons. And these recipes are used to illustrate the personal environmental savings 
and nutritional benefits of choosing plant-based over the meat counterparts. And in the second half of the book, um, we give some plant-based recipes that are divided according to categories, one for each chapter, such as we have chapter on vegetables, uh, grains and legumes, soy, and baking without dairy and eggs. And I included these recipes for the reader so that he or she can just start cooking vegan meals without having to go out and buy another book. So you you had environmental advocates in mind with, with this book, like to help them transition, yeah? Yes. Um, I mean, there are a lot of people who are very much concerned about the environment. I mean, we can just see the number of people that go out to protest for the Kinder Morgan pipelines, um, and recently with the oil spill in uh, English Bay. Uh, so we have a lot of people who, are, who care about the environment, but a lot of them uh, don't realize, they're just simply unaware of the impacts that our food choices have on the environment, and it's far-reaching and widespread. Great points. Um, I find when I when I think about the environmental effects of the meat industry, the yes. first thing that comes to mind is greenhouse gas emissions, right? And you say in your book that a global shift toward a vegan diet is critical in order to mitigate the worst impacts of climate change. So if you had just a few minutes, as you do right now, to explain that claim to someone who either doesn't know very much about climate change or who doesn't even believe in it, what would you say to this person to convey your reasoning? Yes, that's, that's, a, that's a very good point that you brought up. Um, it's actually a quote uh, from the UN Environment Program in 2010, just a few years ago. Now, we know that climate change is responsible for shifting weather, weather patterns, such as the recent drought we, um, we have seen in California. And, but other apparent consequences of climate change include ocean warming and acidification, uh, the rising of sea levels, the melting of Arctic sea ice. As well, it's uh, responsible for the larger and more long-lasting wildfires that we're uh, witnessing. In fact, uh, there's been an increase in the number of wildfires across the western parts of the United States. The livestock industry contributes uh, between 18 to 25 percent of the global greenhouse gas emissions. And this uh, number is more than all the modes of transportation combined. And it was this, uh, this was first documented in the UN Food and Agriculture Organization's report in 2006 called Livestock's Long Shadow. And it is this fact that forms the basis for the urgency with which humans need to shift toward a plant-based diet. Yeah, um, that it's definitely, yeah, the evidence is definitely out there, and I hope that people are starting to uh, wake up to that. Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk now about what I consider to be one of the most significant but but probably most overlooked environmental reasons to eat a plant-based diet, and that has to do with the animal's inefficient conversion of plant mm -hmm. protein. Yeah. Um, can you describe that a bit and tell us, tell us how it works? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, and those of us who are old enough, and I'm probably dating myself here, uh, but um, some of us may remember a book called Diet for a Small Planet. And that was um, uh, published several decades ago by Francis Moore LePay. Now, however, even though it was published several decades ago, emphasizing this point, we are still perpetuating this inefficient practice of the livestock industry. As the po human population grows exponentially, it's getting harder now to ignore the issue of food security for future generations. It is simply not possible to continue the Western diet for developed countries as well as expanding it into countries like China, where as the, st as the standard of living increases, more people are adopting the Western diet of meat and dairy. Now, uh, there's a distinguished Canadian professor called Vaclav Smil, and he's listed by the journal Forbes Policy as one of the top 100 global thinkers of our time. And he has calculated that it takes a ratio of roughly 3 to 1 in terms of converting feed to chicken meat 
for for chickens. Oh. And now, if you think that's uh, inefficient for pork, that ratio uh, increases to about nine to one. So it takes nine uh, portions of feed to give you one portion of pork. Mm. And when we go up to beef, it's astronomical. It's twenty-five to one. Twenty-five pounds or kilos of grain to give you one pound or kilo of beef. Mm -hmm. So it's extremely inefficient. Now imagine the number of hungry people we can feed worldwide with this amount of grain that we feed to the animals. Um, So another way that I like to uh, present is, is if we just consider the global cattle population, just think of the number of cows that we are raising. In the world, there's about 1.3 billion cattle that are being raised. They consume an amount of calories that could feed 8.7 billion people. So the amount of grains we're feeding to the global cattle population, we can feed 8.7 billion people. And right now, the uh, world's population is at 7 billion. So we we don't have uh, food shortages. We're just using it extremely inefficiently. Yeah, those are those are staggering facts. Hi, I'm Patricia Elise again, by the way. Yeah. Um, so I I just wanted to ask you about dairy. Um, it was interesting to note in your book that the production of cheese, um, obviously a common dairy food, mm-hmm. is actually quite detrimental to our planet, even more so than some meat products. Um, can you explain this? Yes, and, and very gladly. You know, um, like most omnivores who decide to go veg, usually the last animal products to leave off are uh, dairy and eggs uh, because somehow these products don't seem as, quote, bad. But, but let's talk about cheese specifically, as you've mentioned. Uh, if you consider the water footprint for cheese, um, it gets a little technical, but it's, it's not too technical here. Um, it takes about 5,000 liters of water to produce one kilogram of cheese. Mm. Now, you know what one liter, of, um, one liter of milk looks or one liter of water looks like? So imagine 5,000 of those to just give you one kilo of cheese. And in addition to that, the manure production, because as we all know, uh, cheese comes from milk, which comes from cows, the manure production is one of the worst at 37 kilograms of cow poop per kilogram of cheese, which is almost the same as beef at roughly 40 kilograms of manure per kilogram of beef. Now, all other forms of animal products pale in comparison. Uh, For example, the next category is pork, and it's only at, well, it's not only, but it still produces 9 kilograms of manure per kilogram of pork, but it's definitely less than that of cheese or uh, beef. Another issue for cheese is the greenhouse gas production. It's the third highest in terms of greenhouse gas emissions after lamb and beef. So that's why many traditional Western dishes using cheese is so environmentally costly. I mean, just think of 5,000 liters of water and 37 kilograms of manure for every kilogram of cheese It should be enough to turn the informed consumer off with plant-based alternatives that are just as delicious and even healthier. Yeah, I mean, you'd you'd hope to hear that. Hey, uh, Patricia, uh, (laughs) Amir again. Um, You sort of touched on it there, but I'd like to talk about uh, the waste a little bit more. Um, With humans killing 70 billion farmed animals annually on a worldwide basis, that has to create a lot of excrement, again, as you touched on, and urine, which I know no one really wants to think about, but someone still needs to deal with it. Um, Can you give some facts about farmed animal waste and tell us environmental concerns that come into play uh, when we're talking about the waste runoff from the factory farms? Yes. Uh, the problem with animal waste is that it, it's not just uh, urine and feces. It also contains the pesticides, the fertilizers, the hormones, and the antibiotic residues uh, given to, anti- to uh, farm animals routinely. When the runoff from factory farms carrying this concoction goes into waterways, the nitrogen and phosphorus from the runoff give rise to algae blooms. And when the algae die, they sink to the ocean bottom, and consequently the depletion of oxygen from the water then kills sea life, creating what's called a dead zone. Right now, there are about 400 of these dead zones around the world, 
And just to give our listeners a sense of the enormity of this problem, in the U.S., the farm animals produce 130 times as much waste as that nation's human population. Oh my God. And the factory farm runoff in that, in that country pollutes more waterways than all their industrial sources combined. Wow. So, you know, we're talking a huge manure problem, and they're not treated. Hmm. It's interesting because people often say, um, you know, the earth is being destroyed because of human population. But then when you think of, um, you know, um, cattle population, exactly. uh, it's really like the, the, the more devastating mm-hmm. impact, I think. Yes. Um, now, um, moving on, I guess, to, to kind of like what can people do, um, an integral part of your book that makes it different than other books I've read about environmental impacts of diet is that you include recipes, and you mentioned them previously. Um, I'd like to talk about uh, the recipes that you incorporate that analyze, um, that show analysis between typical meat recipe and then its vegan comparison, uh, where you're switching out, say, beef for tofu, for example, yes. or dairy cheese for non-dairy cheese cheese. Um, can you give us some examples of sure. things like that? Yes. Um, let's, let's take the example that's given uh, on the back cover of my book as well as on the website. Um, I, I took a, a typical sloppy joe. Um, everybody, it's a, you know, it's a traditional comfort food. Um, and what I did simply was just substituted the ground beef in the sloppy joe with tofu. Um, and I show on my website, you, you know, you mesh it up uh, so that it resembles, you crumble it so it's like ground beef. But, you know, in practice, for the novice, uh, people can just buy one of the many plant-based substitutes that are already on the market that, you know, that have been flavored with different types of flavorings, um, depending on if you like, uh, you know, spicy or, or uh, oriental flavorings. Um, but anyways, for the purpose of the calculations, I simply use tofu because I can calculate the water footprint and the greenhouse gas emissions of tofu, but I don't know the, uh, all the ingredients of proprietary brands. Um, then I kept everything else in the recipe the same, such as the onion, the garlic, you know, the tomato paste. So what this demonstrates first is that it's easy to switch a, a meat-based recipe to a plant-based one, by simply replacing the animal protein with a plant protein and just using the same list of ingredients and using the same cooking method. So it's it's not a big learning curve. Um, Secondly, I then calculated the environmental savings between the beef uh, recipe and the vegan version for three environmental parameters. I calculated how much water we save, how much manure we diverted, and how much greenhouse gas we save. So for this example, here are the results. We save, if we replace tofu, uh, uh, if we replace the ground beef with tofu, we save close to 1,700 liters of water or 450 gallons per serving of sloppy joe. So per serving, you save that much amount of water simply by substituting the ground beef with tofu. And we also prevented the generation of close to 10 pounds or 4.5 kilos of manure per serving and enough greenhouse gas to drive 11 k's or 7 miles. And all this just for one serving. Wow, very cool. Mm -hmm. That's uh, impressive statistics. I don't think yeah. people can really uh, argue with that. <laughs> no. um, so swaying now from the main environmental and health focuses of your book, uh, you mm-hmm. do have a chapter called What Are Humans Designed to Eat? And it explores whether meat is a necessary or important part of the human diet at all. Uh, could you go over some of the points that, that you explore in that chapter with regards to comparing humans' anatomical or physiological structures compared to those of carnivores? Sure. Um, I wrote this particular chapter to provide another perspective uh, in support of plant-based diet. Now, this was originally done by Dr. Milton Mills, and he gave some very clear comparisons of our anatomical features with those of herbivores, omnivores, and carnivores. And when you read through each comparison, the conclusion is that our bodies are very similar to herbivores. 
So I'll just give a few examples. One striking feature I always like to point out is that herbivores have a relatively small mouth-to-head ratio, while omnivores and carnivores have a large mouth-to-head ratio. I mean, just look at our mouth opening and look at your dog. Another one is our uh, short and blunt canine teeth compared to the long, sharp, and curved ones of, say, your dog or your cat, or, if you can imagine, a tiger, a wolf, or a bear. Another one that is sometimes overlooked is that herbivores need to chew their food, like cows, giraffes, and, of course, like us, we have to chew our food. But feed your dog, your cat, your lion—not your lion—but you know, if you go, to, <laughs> if you look, watch uh, the Animal Planet, you watch the lion or wolf eat. They, they just swallow their food whole. Um, a good example is when I feed my dog. I mean, he just practically inhales his food and it's gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and when we get into the, the digestive systems, there are also many uh, persuasive characteristics that point to humans as being omnivores, but just to name a couple, herbivores have a smaller stomach capacity than omnivores or carnivores. This makes sense because herbivores, like we we, we chew up our food, while omnivores and carnivores swallow chunks of their prey. They don't chew. So our stomach is only about 25% of our total digestive tract volume whereas a dog or a lion's stomach capacity is 60 to 70% of their digestive tract volume. So you can see that there is a huge difference. And then a final characteristic is that herbivores, such as humans, we cannot detoxify vitamin A in our livers. But, of course, carnivores and omnivores, such as tigers and bears, they can. Mm. Well, wow, yeah, it's uh, again, it's all it's all adding up here. So I'm now yeah. I know that um, that you say that individual actions can exert an immense impact on upon animal suffering and environmental degradation. Um, so if you were if you say came across a meat eater who said that you know going vegan doesn't really make a difference, you know one person's actions don't really matter. Uh, what would you say to them? Well, every movement starts with individual actions, and it's the sum of the aggregate that makes a difference. And what we really need is a global shift towards a plant-based diet, and it starts with each person. So what I would do is offer him or her my book. Uh, Look at the numbers in the analysis where we have those side-by-side comparisons, and it's a, a compelling case. That's why I think this book is such an effective tool to educate non-vegans about the differences their food choices can have on the environment and their health. And I think the findings in this book will empower the reader and inspire them to take action because they now know they can make a huge difference. Sounds good. Yeah, we d- we definitely highly uh, recommend your book. Uh, it's called again the Restore Our Planet Diet: Food Choices, Our Environment, and Our Health. And people can find it on Amazon and your website. Uh, it's RestoreOurPlanetDiet.com, I believe. Oh, perfect. Yeah. And yeah, we want to really thank you for coming on the show today. That was a really, you know, we don't have much time, but I feel like we really covered so much and you're, yeah. you're so well, well researched and well versed on this. Um, thank, thank you for having me. Thank Thanks. you. Oh, our pleasure. Have a great okay. day. And actually, uh, Alyssa, before you continue, I just wanted to give a shout out to one of our uh, favorite listeners who pledged $300 to us oh. today. He didn't want his name mentioned, but uh, yeah. So thank you if you're okay. listening to us. Awesome. Thanks. Yay, Co-op Radio. Yay. (laughs) You're listening to Animal Voices on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM CFRO, 100% non-corporate member-driven radio broadcasting live from so-called Vancouver, BC on unceded Coast Salish territories. So now we have a few reminders of events that are coming up this weekend. Tomorrow, Saturday, April 18th at 1 o'clock p.m. at the Vancouver Art Gallery, we, there's the Stop Bill C-51 rally. This is a, a major Canada-wide rally 
um, against the Harper government's proposed anti-terrorism legislation, or Bill C-51. Um, this could have pretty critical implications for animal activists, environmental activists, all sorts of activists. Um, so it's something that people should be paying attention to. Yeah, and actually, I did an interview about that last week on Animal Voices. That was our April 9th episode um, about B- Bell C-51 and why animal advocates should care. Check it out. Fantastic. Yeah, you can check it out on the podcast. You can also find more information at stop Bill F- Bill, sorry, stop Bill C-51.ca. Um, also, tomorrow, Saturday, April 18th at 7 p.m. at Hartwood Community Cafe, there's the Queer Animal Talent Show presented by Queer Animal Collective. Um, the admission is by donation. Uh, if you'd like more information on that, you can search Facebook for Queer Animal Talent Show. And then, I'll be performing there. Right. Alyssa Yay. will be performing. Yay. And um, then on Sunday, April 19th at 3 o'clock p.m. at Spartacus Books, um, there's a presentation called Empowering, quote unquote, Domesticated Farmed Animals to Become Activists. This is a presentation by local activist and um, Direct Action Everywhere Vancouver co-organizer Darren Chang, exploring different ways in which animal rights and liberation activists can work in solidarity with other animals. So that's something to check out on Sunday. Awesome. So much coming up. And that's just this weekend. Hope to see you out at one of those events. Uh, We want to finally thank you so much for your ongoing support of Animal Voices. We would not be here without you, our beloved listeners. Um, It is time to renew or become a member right now during our spring member drive. Um, We just, you know, ask for your help a few times a couple times a year officially, but really we need that ongoing support. And uh, we very much appreciate it. So how to donate again, it's at coopradio.org. Just click on donate to co-op radio. And remember to say Animal Voices is your favorite show on co-op radio. And, or you can actually call us right now. We're in the studio, 604-684-8494. And you can become a member for any amount. And we want to thank you for joining us today for our special Earth Day show featuring Lisa Kemmerer and Dr. Patricia Tallman. Uh, we learned so much about how how uh, animal um, issues are connected with the environment and how our diet um, and making changes that way can really have a big effect. Um, on next week's show, it is World Week for Lab Animals. Jackie brings us special programming in honor of that. And um, and we're going to end uh, with a song called Global Warning by... Uh, it's by Earth Amplified featuring Stickman from Dead Prez. Awesome, yeah. And then stay tuned for Radio Ecoshock with Alex Smith uh, tying into the Earth Day theme. So stay tuned for that. And remember to be kind to animals. And check us out at uh, animalvoices.org for more information and to stay in touch. Where the bell out for this? Swim out the metropolis. Cause ice get melt like sun-kissed Icarus. When they chat and try to Baghdad. Yo, your numbers don't add. Just the greenhouse gas. Appalachian coal miner. Fisherman in Bangladesh. Uncle Sam making bets. Write his name by the X. Son Valdez. Probably asthma's next. Little Johnny got a little funny knob in his neck. So what's the problem with that? You just a corporate exec with a strap that oil from the boils on the backs and that cherry is give me that pass out text like reps through the Mavericks offset politics Copenhagen no debate need the reparations and why you waiting another 600 acres gone in the Congo and Amazon by the end of the song on it on it we so on it gotta be on it if you ain't on it it's a warning take a look at the world around look the temperature is rising look the time is now go green go solar go agriculture Fiber and McDonald's and Coca-Cola, all corporate vultures should burn in the toxic sulfur they emit. For every dollar they get, they exploit the culture and take resources, control the media, and censor the voice of the voiceless, sitting back fat in their office. They don't see people just profits and losses. The seeds want to grow, but it's deep in darkness. The hood got to learn how to turn the garbage into healthy soil. We could help the world, but we running out of time like they running out of oil. On it, on it, we so Gotta be on it if you ain't on it, disappointed. Take a look at the world around, cause the temperature's
rising, the time is now. Out of in July, right? Feel the sunlight. But it's only April, something don't feel right. And yeah, it's true, we all live under the sun. But what we doing got us all living under the gun. Cause the science is real, but the politics are dominant. Without action, the outlook is ominous. But on the nuts, said the government's the lobbyists. And they get that dough to keep the stat quo. Freeze that cash flow and scorch the natural. Pale white horse coming directly at you. Took a whole lot of troops to top of the statue. But just one Katrina put a tree in your bathroom. Cause we don't live in a vacuum. Things you put out in the world will come back and get at you. Like a boomerang, don't care who threw it. How you gon' explain to a hurricane that you endure? I said the children and the sun will rise again. Worldwide, for the love that lives within. Oh, yes, all the pain is suffering. Honey, earth, rebirth for the ancient race. I said the children and the sun will rise again. Worldwide, for the love that lives within. 